and welcome to Romaniacs. We're recording the day after Boris Johnson spectacularly lost his first Commons vote as PM by 328 to 301. 21 Tory rebels helped Parliament take control of the Brexit process and all lost the whip for their troubles. Philip Lieb formed an all-time mic drop by crossing the floor to join the Lib Dems while Johnson was mid-speech. <laughs> the government's majority has evaporated. Johnson wants an election. Corbyn say they won't give him one. It's all kicking off and we're here to administer expert VAR. That's football, Ian. <laughs> we have two of our regulars. I'm not sure if that's how it works, but I believe it is. <laughs> we have two of our regulars with us. Ian Dunt is editor of politics.co.uk. Uh, you covered last night's drama in Parliament. Um, how did it compare to other dry, dramatic mega-thread nights over the past couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I think pretty good. They're starting to meld into one a little bit. Like, have you come across, like, news stories of shit that you actually lived through that happened, like, two months ago, and you're like, yeah. fucking hell, I forgot all about that. Yeah. Monday, mate, try important. Monday. Yeah, yeah, I know. Have you, so very important have you tried time, just but... putting all your threads into one enormous book-length thread mm. and then just putting no. it out on hard covers? <laughs> no, that's uh, profoundly lazy. But now that you say it, actually, that sounds quite attractive. Um, no, 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 so none of that. I mean, like, I thought it was... It was in terms of parliamentary drama, you, you can't ask for much better than than that, really. And I quite enjoyed the foreign, like lots of foreign correspondents in the US and Canada were tuning in. And I, my one of the main pleasures I get is watching them watch John Burko. Because just like, <laughs> there was one Canadian journalist who took a clip of like Burko talking to Gove about their school and yeah. shouting him over and over like, "Be a good boy." And her tweet was, "Can anyone prove that Britain is real?" <laughs> <laughs> That was Maximum Burko, that. It was. That was peak Burko right there. And what was the mood in the chamber when, when Philip Lee crossed the floor? Uh, so I'm sitting up in my offices just above the chamber, right. so I, I'm not in it because it's impossible to sort of do this stuff oh, fast okay. enough at that point. Um, but, I mean, to be honest, most of those, that, that didn't even seem like as big a moment as the stuff that came later, I don't think. And, you know, there was still confusion there. There was uncertainty about exactly what had just happened. Not everyone was looking. The big sort of impact, I thought, was probably when... Burko asked for people to do a shout out on a closure motion ahead of the vote. And you could see how many Tory MPs were stood up mm. to show their part. And just on the basis of that, that was when everyone was like, oh, fucking hell, that was quite <laughs> like that's more than 12, you know, which is around where people estimated mm. it might be. So that seemed to be the moment where it was really hitting home what was about to happen. Naomi Smith is the tireless CEO of Best for Britain, a sufficiently formidable force to be barred from the Tory conference, <laughs> missing out <laughs> on all the good times. Hi, Naomi, how are you? Uh, yeah, good. Your, your blacklisting uh, made the news, or the Daily Mirror at least. Um, were you surprised or did you see it coming? I don't think anyone's surprised these days by uh, the current regime uh, and the party behind it that are, are controlling us at the moment. They're trying to shut down Parliament, shut down democracy, shut down debate. So having anyone that might challenge their views on Brexit was probably not going to be welcome at their party conference. But it's fine because we booked our fringe room outside uh, the secure zone in anticipation of this barring. So we will still have a presence uh, just outside the perimeter fence. But you won't be able to go to parties with Dominic Raab? Sadly not, no. Many moons ago, i.e. Saturday, tens of thousands of people across the country joined last-minute Stop the Coup protest against proroguing of Parliament, and we'll talk about them later. But for now, Naomi, do you think the word coup is, is apt or a tad overblown or a tad overblown but useful given the circumstances? Um, I think the word coup is absolutely fine to use in this uh, context because it is... Uh, you know, we keep saying this on this show that we are. Uh, this is an unprecedented thing to happen. Conventions are being broken all the time, um, and there is 
obviously no mandate for this whatsoever. There is barely a mandate for Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. He's got no majority now. Uh, and and the whole point of Vote Leave was to get a deal. That was their, you know, the, the, the campaign that they fought. Uh, and it was all about bringing back sovereignty to our parliament. And he's, he's tearing that up and taking sovereignty away from them. Um, this isn't what parliament wants. So that's why at Best of Britain we've, um, we're going to set up an alternative parliament, but we'll probably talk about that a bit later. Our special guest today is Jonathan Liss, Deputy Director of the think tank British Influence Prolific Brexit Analyst. He previously worked in the European Parliament and for the Unrepresented Nations and Peoples Organisation. He's never off Twitter, now he's in your earbuds. You can't get away from him. Hello, Jonathan, welcome to Romania. Well, that sounds like something my mother would have written. Um, <laughs> um, he never tidies his room. <laughs> welcome, Jonathan. <laughs> He he's always, this place he's like always, a hotel. He's always late. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Well, um, thank you very much for having me. Um. Um, during the Tory leadership election, you had a, a viral thread about the time you got caught up in one of Johnson's lies. And you said in that that he gets sort of nasty when he's cornered. And there's yeah. Sort of disinformation. And yeah, and yeah. Stuff. Um, is what he's been doing the last few days, based on what sort of you know of him, does it read as calculated ruthlessness um, or desperation? I think with Johnson, it's always all of the above. So what you have seen is is personal vindictiveness, uh, a kind of uniquely personal viciousness that he would uh, take the whip away from half the party's grandees. In fact, all the party's grandees. Think about who are the party grandees? Ken Clark, um, Ken Clark, uh, Nicholas Soames. Um, who are the other grandies, actually? Burp. Yeah, Oliver Letwin. Oliver Letwin, Alistair Burke, people like that. The only people who have any credibility left for the Tory party are no longer Tories. Uh, so that is the kind of a hallmark of Johnson. He's prepared to ride roughshod over friendships uh, to revenge people who've crossed him. It's also um, desperation in that he is uh, just trying to pull counter move after counter move in the hope that something works. And above all, it's just a personal hubris that he believes he's born uh, to be in this position. Uh, he deserves it. Um, he belongs there. And he's going to do whatever it takes um, to, to stay there. And it doesn't matter what or who he has to destroy in order to achieve his goals. Uh, the Dominic Cummings hype squad insists that everybody's walking into his cunning trap. Um, can, can you explain what uh, it didn't look cunning last night. Can you explain what Cummings' plan is meant to be, and whether you buy his maverick genius who's read The Art of War and won't stop banging on about it? Rep. Um, I think Cummings has been exposed as a genius unloved in his own abattoir. Um, he is a man who has. Uh, gone through life being told that he's very clever and uh, he's now being given the chance to uh, exercise power and he's discovered that he's actually not as clever as he thinks he is. Uh, so I suppose the plan was to uh, obviously suspend Parliament so they, they, couldn't, uh, they couldn't sort of uh, scrutinise the plans, they couldn't stop Brexit. If that wasn't going to work, uh, they would call an election and then go to the country on a platform of no deal. But the point about Cummings is, is that he's actually not interested in the Conservative Party. He's interested in one goal only, and that is to deliver Brexit on the 31st of October. And so when you are prepared, when you have such a narrow view of something, it, there are things that you simply won't care about or things that will be unintended consequences which you haven't been looking at, which will in fact derail that single purpose you have. And that is a fundamental mistake uh, that he's made. So last night, you know, nothing <laughs> nothing can sort of highlight better um, the scale of his humiliation yeah. than, you know, when you when you think that you're, you know, going to execute a reign of terror and suspend Parliament and, and everyone sort of breathlessly and fearfully endorsing your genius and then you're resorting to, you know, shouting drunkenly and incoherently at the people 
people who just humiliated you. And, you know, six weeks into office, he's been completely defeated because there's no way out of him now, because it seems as though um, the opposition has successfully trapped him into, uh, first of all, blocking no deal, and then they're not going to give him what he wants, which is an election. So there's nowhere for Johnson or Cummings to go at this moment. Well, the ghosts of Sun Tzu and Bismarck are looking <laughs> down on Cummings and tutting. We'll be making sense of this wild, wild week throughout the show with help from Jonathan, but first some reminders from Naomi. A few very quick reminders for you. Number one, if Boris Johnson thinks he can shut Parliament down, he has another thing coming. With the support of over 60 MPs from across the House, Best for Britain is setting up an alternative Parliament so our MPs can carry on sitting, debating and defending democracy, whatever Johnson and Cummings try to do. We're crowdfunding a new venue in central London. We've already raised £50,000. We probably need something closer to £100,000 and therefore we need your help to make it happen. Security, etc. comes at a bit of a cost and we want to keep everybody safe. Visit bestforbritain.org slash Fund to pitch in for the People's Parliament. Number two, our next Romaniacs Live at the Leicester Square Theatre with special guest James O'Brien sold out in record time. But don't worry, if you couldn't get tickets, we're announcing a second house at 9pm on the same day, Monday the 23rd of September, with another brilliant guest. The legendary Mark Gatiss of League of Gentlemen, Sherlock, and appearing on the Romaniacs podcast fame, <laughs> will be joining us for a separate show with brand new material and a different panel drawn from our regulars. Alex Andreu is confirmed and we're announcing everyone else soon. Tickets for Democalypse 2019 Round 2, 9pm on Monday the 23rd of September are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. And if you come to both shows, show your ticket at the merchandise stall and we'll give you a free Ultra Remainer mug. Number three, alongside Romaniacs, our producers make the On the House podcast with Sam Jima, Dr Philip Lee and friendly rivals who discuss the week in politics over a pint. They're back for a new series on Friday and it's been quite a week for them. Philip obviously crossed the floor to the Lib Dems in the middle of Boris Johnson's speech and they both rebelled and lost the Tory whip. And their special guest is shy, soft-spoken and reticent Labour MP Jess Phillips. So it really will be quite the listen. <laughs> Subscribe to On The House on your favourite podcast app to get it as soon as it comes out. As ever, follow us on Twitter at RomaniacsCast to find out more. Thanks, Naomi. I was at a barbecue over the weekend with normal people that I'm proud to call my friends. And people kept asking what I thought would happen this week. I said, I didn't know. That's why I do a podcast with people who do know. So um, I didn't see this <laughs> turning out exactly as it did. Um, so we'll start with the Bluffers Guide. Um, Ian, can you whiz us through um, what happened on Tuesday night and what it means, like the, the sort of bare-bones version. Yeah, yeah. So um, I mean, there's, there's been an option which uh, John Burko has flagged up for some time um, of basically just trying to create an inroads for parliamentary involvement into what's going on with Brexit. And it's called Standing Order 24, which is basically to stand up and say, look, I want an emergency debate. If the Speaker thinks it's suitable, I mean, this is all, I mean, you know, unconventional, to, to put it at its mildest. Um, and the Speaker decides that it's OK, you can have... Uh, a debate on it. It used to be the case that there would be a vote at the end which was neutral. Uh, in, other, in other words, you couldn't put amendments on it. They didn't really have any meaning beyond saying that this debate had taken place. Um, in this case, it was actually much more meaningful than that. And this basically allowed an opportunity just for MPs to get in there and go, right, what we want next is to take control of the, of the order paper, of the timetable, the next day, which is today, which is Wednesday, in order to try and pass a bill that would force the Prime Minister to extend Article 50 if he gets to October the 19th without a deal. Um, it would extend it for three months to January the 31st. After that, 
if the EU um, ask for a different date, the Prime Minister will have to accept it within 48 hours unless Parliament says that it won't accept the date. Right. So really the bill locks in Parliament. Of course it was betrayed rather predictably as, well, you're giving all the power to the EU. It doesn't do that at all, really. What it says is Parliament needs to be involved at every stage. So they'll be debating that now. There's a bit of sort of back-alley cut and thrust going on in the Lords about whether they can kill it with a load of amendments and lots of peers turning up today with three pairs of clothes and a blanket and, you know, preparing to just spend the whole the night there. Glastonbury ever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, I suspect it can get past. They're going to sprawl that. like mugs. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, why not? I mean, in that, in that picture, context... The picture, of, the picture of uh, sort of contemptuous tourism, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, so, that, so that's where we are right now. Um, and, you know, it got through the... The attempt to stop Tory MPs, as you sort of mentioned earlier, was extremely brutal. Um, that failed. We got 21 Tory MPs rebelling, which was above, you know, the estimates that we were coming up with during the day, which is a very strong rebellion. Um, Boris Johnson has savaged his own majority, and we now have to see where we go from here. Um, Naomi, no deal seems to have united the opposition like never before. Is, does it does it really take uh, the apocalypse to, to get everybody playing nicely? It seems that way. Uh, obviously, there was good cross-party working happening earlier on in the summer, particularly ahead of the Brecon by-election um, that, of course, didn't involve Labour. Uh, and no to no deal is a, a pretty easy thing for, for Labour to get involved with. It's, it's you know, they've always been against that. This isn't a sort of a marked move in a, in a different Brexit direction for them. Um, and the the meeting that Corbyn held last week where the, the party leaders were invited was, I think, a, you know, a, a pretty decent step forward in that regard. I'm, I'm thrilled by it at the moment. Um, I think the next thing that is vital is that we talk the SNP and the Labour leadership out of backing a general election before Boris Johnson has come back from Brussels having sought an extension mm. or some kind of vote of no confidence before that. It's obviously incredibly tempting for the SNP because they are going to take probably all of the seats off Labour and Conservatives in Scotland so that they are win-win in an election situation. Um, uh, Labour really aren't. Um, there's sort of no, no poll at the moment showing that they could possibly former majority, they're going to be reliant on other people's votes. And most of the Labour MPs know this and, and, and probably agree with us and the, the Caroline Lucas position that she came out with first, that we're not going to give you that election until no deal's properly off the table. We've got a big election bit coming up, so I want to kind of save, sure. save that. But I, I'm just wondering in terms of, like, um, the discipline, I think I might think there are only, like, two Labour MPs yeah, and voted the other way, which is... You know, given the kind of fractiousness in the party and there's been a bigger contingent, mm. of, there's a bigger mm. contingent of Brexiters than that, mm. um, there is something quite kind of... I mean, obviously, it's an appall it's appalling that we are facing no deal, you know, sure. that possibility. But it is quite bracing to just see everybody just snap in and go, yeah. or everybody bar two, and go, fuck no. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so there's a, another group tonight that are putting down an amendment um, that are the sort of Labour dealers, if you like, um, and I think that includes people like Stephen Kinnock, and I, I think for some of them, I mean, it's, it's not going to get through, it's not going to get the backing of the government or of um, 
all of the Labour leadership and everyone listening to this podcast will know that already by the time this goes out. But I think it's usually useful for them to be bought off with being allowed to put that sort of thing down so that they can say to their constituents, look, we tried to get a deal through, mm. um, but, but you know, w- without having to... Isn't that mainly what they're group. doing? That's the whole motivation of that group, you know, your Kinnock and Flint yeah. and DiPiero. The whole thing is signalling right. to their constituents. Exactly. And when, and when you go back and look back at their voting records, which is something we've done at Best of Britain over the last 24 hours, we've looked at every single vote that's happened over the space of the last couple of years. And we often sort of think, oh, there are all these really difficult Labour MPs. But when you analyse how they've actually voted when it's come to it, not many of them have done really dreadful votes, mm-hmm. uh, but they make an, a huge amount of noise about it beforehand. So, you know, a bit like Johnson, mm-hmm. it's, there's a lot of bluster there. It's amazing that they're called the Labour dealers because they are, in fact, dealing the most psychedelic drug ever devised, which is a fancy Brexit which works for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but as long as you pretend that that's what you're going for... Then but it's job I done for them. Isn't I it? think that I think that they really want to uh, look. I was thrilled with them last night. Like I, I gave Caroline Flint a shout out, which I've never done before, because she has said on the record that she would vote for No Deal. And when it came down to it, she and others like Sarah Champion, Emma Lewell Buck, Labour leavers who've said they would in fact back a No Deal. When it came to it, they they voted for this um, rebel, the, the rebel motion, which will lead to uh, blocking No Deal. So either so it's just another way that Johnson's completely fucked this by turning even even sympathetic Labour MPs against him. Um, let me just go back to you for a sec. Um, you are a Lib Dem. Um, there was some uh, unease uh, among some party members about accepting Philip yeah. Lee, given that he had a sort of track record of, of voting socially conservatively. Um, and somebody, in fact, resigned. I think That's that... right, yeah, the, the chair of the LGBTQI Lib Dem. But, but given that that was what basically flipped them from having a majority to being a minority government. I mean, did the Lib Dems have, have any choice? Were they really going to go, no, mate, because of this, you know, well, you said about gay marriage? I like, mean, you could have you could have taken away his majority without joining another party. You you can cross the floor and not join another party. But this was more dramatic than... Um, I, I mean, look, I, I do think that it is fairly humiliating for the Lib Dems who, you know, that are particularly active in the LGBT community and, you know, my solidarity stands with them. It's not just some social conservative voting. It's been some pretty horrendous comments about uh, all immigrants should be tested for HIV at the border and sent back if they're positive. And that coming from a doctor has extra, Mm. you know, power. So actually, uh, no, I I think you've got to really consider whether or not these people are liberals. And a lot of the time they're not. They are are true conservatives. They're genuinely conservative. And it's it's a great pity that that there is now no political home for them. Um, I think the vast majority of them will stand as independent Conservatives. Actually, when you, the sad thing is when you analyse the 21, I think there are probably only about 13 of them that are restanding. There aren't actually that many of them that are restanding. So the stakes are, A, a bit lower for them anyway, um, uh, and, and, B, you know, the others are probably not going to, to join another party and you, will stand as independent do you think any of them? Do you, do you think any more will join the Lib Dems? Uh, I, I believe that some of them are uh, considering it, um, but there are what is much more likely is that, that, that they'll form part of the Remain Alliance and that in in those seats which are generally Conservative Lib Dem uh, facing, you know, the Lib Dems are in a strong second, uh, the Lib Dems may do a non-aggression pact or even not, not stand a PPC against the independent Conservative. My dream is that basically we get to a point where every single MP is an independent <laughs> and everybody just does it's what they... libertarian fantasy. Everyone just does what they feel like on the day and then just, just see what happens. Um, Jonathan, last week, uh, Ruth Davison, generally popular Tory, one of the few, decided to step down. Justin Greening and others won't stand again. 
Last night, uh, I was at the GQ Awards and Rory Stewart came straight from the Commons to say that he was accepting Politician of the Year Award on the evening that he effectively, although not literally, you know, sort of ceased to be a politician, was his gag. Um, is the Tory party now the Brexit party, essentially? Is there any... Is this just the collapse of the idea that, that it's a sort of broad church and you can, you can be a kind of strong Remainer and a Tory? No, I mean, it became the Brexit party many, many months ago. Theresa May saw to that uh, when she went for the hardest Brexit available to her, pandered to the ERG um, for two years, despite the fact that they were obviously going to be the ones who shafted her in the end, which they were, uh, and uh, they left no space for anyone to uh, protest for a soft Brexit, which was um, highly suggested by the referendum results, in, you know, including a Norway um, plus customs union, uh, which people like me were fighting for for two years before the polarisation took place and we were shunted to either side. So now people like me are not talking about Norway. I mean, I went to court to argue for Norway and now I can think of, well, of course, there's something worse than Norway, which is a no-deal Brexit, but certainly people like me are arguing all out for Remain now. And that is and that is absolutely because of what the Conservatives did when they took a result which was basically slapped down in the middle pretty much and decided to go for a very, very hard right-wing interpretation which suited Theresa May's incredibly xenophobic uh, mindset. But this is different. Right, because we, we in the past we've we've got our hopes up about Tory rebels and pretty much all of them who aren't called Dominic Grieve um, flinched and even you know Dominic Grieve a couple of times believed yeah. sort of May's bullshit when he shouldn't have. Yeah. Um, this time they actually knew in advance that they were risking deselection, um, but they did it anyway. So, what changed? Do you think? It, I mean, like what what made all those people decide I'm literally going to throw my career on the fire? over this? Because now we're at the business end of Brexit and the time for games is over. Uh, so this is the last chance. Um, do people want to go down in history as uh, the politicians who facilitated uh, a collapsed economy, uh, food and medicine shortages by the government's own estimation, uh, sort of a, a complete international pariah status? Or do they actually stand up for the people they're elected to represent? It's now or never. And so people like Caroline Noakes, who none of us would have dreamed could possibly rebel, a former immigration minister during the Windrush scandal, who none of us had very much time for, stood up and said, I was elected to serve my constituents. Um, they're worried about their livelihoods. Um, I don't see how I could put my job ahead of theirs. Now, that should be completely normal. And the fact that that was totally extraordinary tells us everything we need to know about the current state of the Conservative Party and the careerist poison which is coursing through that party's veins. I think there's something starting to happen now. It's early days and it could change, but... When a government doesn't have a majority anyway, it's hard for it to get sort of the confidence of its own MPs. When the strategies that you've been pursuing keep on demonstrably failing, and when the narratives that you're putting out there just don't make enough sense on their own terms, even for the guys on the Today programme to take them seriously, even they're just left going, like, well, that's just obviously nonsense. You can't say that there's talks that are being interrupted when you're not holding any talks. <laughs> and yet, the Today programme at certain points just seem to have sort of given up. Yeah. <laughs> you know. on, give, on being even remotely charitable. I mean, today yeah. Nick Robinson was basically saying, you know, Boris Johnson's a liar. Mm. You just get to a point where it's yeah, like... He you praised Corbyn yesterday as well. I mean, how do you get... I mean, just how, how can you take the narrative seriously? And in fact, I've had sort of radio interviews this week where they said, well, what is Boris Johnson's narrative? What's he saying? And even saying it out loud, it actually sounds sort of contradictory. It sounds internally inconsistent because it just doesn't make any sense. And then you see the strategy, a very, very hard line strategy, which is, you know, which 
to Tory MPs, it will be more obvious to us just how hypocritical it is when he was obviously voting against Theresa May's stuff. And now when people do the same to him, yep. they're out the party. Yeah. Yep. Guys who younger MPs like myself would have grown up seeing figures like Ken Clark on the front bench their entire life, mm. you know, yeah. and to suddenly see that. And then where these questions come from of actually does Dominic Cummings have Tory party membership or then worse has he actually even voted Tory? I mean, he's got stuff out there that suggested that the first time he ever voted was for the referendum, which means he's not even a Tory voter. So suddenly, I mean, this morning, even from figures who are really quite Brexity indeed, there was some nervousness about what was going on with the government. There was some anger about the way that they treated some of the other MPs there. So actually, I think like this moment can be quite powerfully effective in sort of going, well, actually, the regime looks like it is nothing like as effective as it sold itself yeah. as being. Yeah, we spent the whole summer thinking, is there a plan B? You know, is, is no deal really the plan A? You know, I have people in number 10 leaking to us saying, trust me, trust me, no deal is the plan. There is nothing else being mm. worked on. Other people saying, no, 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 this is all a ruse. You're underestimating Cummings. Don't be foolish. There will be some kind of a deal. He's, he'll, he'll, he'll do something, he'll do something. There will be a plan B. And I think yesterday, once and for all, we saw they have no plan B. They were all out for, for, for this and they did not see prorogation not working. Well, according to one of those leaks that Cummings absolutely refuses to tolerate, um, <laughs> Cummings uh, <laughs> referred to sort of negotiations as, as, a, as a sham. Yeah. He, was, yeah. he was speaking the reality. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the most extraordinary thing about Brexit for the last three years is that we have suspended our disbelief completely. And anyone who has any understanding of the EU and who spoke to, to any middle-ranking official in the EU would have said, these are our red lines, we're not going to budge on them because our political integrity depends on it. And yet, we still talked about, oh no, they're going to budge on the transition, they're going to budge on the divorce bill, they're going to budge on Ireland, they're going to throw on under the bus because how could Ireland's interest possibly, possibly sort of a Trump ours? And all of this stuff, which is simply uh, the, the kind of the, the self-fulfilling fantasy uh, of our of our own delusion. There's an amazing detail from Sky News where they reported that a draft version of the UK's revised protocol for the backstop was just the old protocol, but the sections referring to the backstop cunningly crossed out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Johnson's, Johnson's going to talk to Varadkar next week and it's going to be the summit, I mean, probably quite an entertaining summit to watch, but Varadkar is not going to uh, kind of placate or appease him in any way. And it's just going to be yet another humiliation for Johnson. But, but coming back to the point we were just talking about a minute ago, I mean, I just have to ask, what were, what were the Tories expecting? What were the Tory leadership expecting in purging, in purging all their grandees? I forgot even to mention Philip Hammond and David Gork before. I mean, other sort of major grandees. What we have seen now is a level of personal poison in the Tory party, which we haven't seen since the 90s. It's totally extraordinary that in just six weeks, they've achieved what not even Theresa May could achieve, which is a deep-rooted uh, hostility and antagonism um, between the Tory leadership and the backbenches, which is now basically Tory all-out Tory civil war. We saw it in the Commons last night and today, with MPs standing up to denounce each other on the same side. A party that's divided cannot normally win an election. Well, Hammond referred to Cummings uh, on the Today programme as, as an entryist and made that point that you were saying, Ian, about is even is even a Tory. Um, and just, you know, in a very short space of time, he has had more negative press. He's become the story way more than, you know, Seamus Milne. There was a certain media fascination yeah. with Seamus Milne as the sort of power behind the throne there and a shifty, unelected figure. Cummings has just, like, blown that away. He made, you know... Mm -hmm. It makes that almost look irrelevant. Um, and now he's being like a sort of Geordie Robespierre going around lopping, <laughs> lopping off heads. 
has he just sort of overplayed his hand and kind of got, gotten high on his own supply and and just convinced himself that he can't be stopped? Because it just seems like he's he's just, he's just so unpopular within the party now. There's a really good piece um, by Tom Chivers on the Unheard website about this. Basically, Tom Chivers saying, look, well, look, I seem to read the same people that he reads, the kind of people that he refers to as, you know, sort of the rationalists online, um, you know, the right sort of... It's mostly, there's an awful lot of game theory going on there, and the Slate Star Codex. Some of these, they're actually very. Lots of these sites are really quite interesting. Although they all deal just like he does with tremendously long blogs, where you start reading the first two parts, you're like, "Oh, it's interesting," and then you're like, "Oh, this is nine thousand words long." <laughs> I don't know if I'm quite he, that committed. He is the long blog post come to life. <laughs> and you know, Tom Jeffers' argument was like, "Well, he's read the same guys. I can tell he's read the same yeah. guys, but he clearly hasn't come to the right conclusion from what they're doing." And so, mostly, you think of it, he just seems to be playing a massive game of chicken. You often see something quite similar, actually, when business people go into politics, and they also have a quite simplistic idea. You bring them in, and they're like, well, I'll just do this, and then it happens, and then off we go. And that works in business, and it fucking does not work in politics. Just saying you want someone to do something is the beginning of a process, not the end. Generally, people going from politics into business have a more successful career than those coming from business into politics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it looks looks like he is one of those sort of rationalist guys, and it looks like he hasn't taken the right lessons and is, is, as ever, massively overconfident. At some point, it might be, we're going to have to have a conversation about angry, overconfident men and the impact that they are having on... Ian, why don't you go into politics? Um, so yeah, look, we we do need to have that conversation at some point. I think he's he's a kind of an exemplar of, of that problem. Can we have uh, finally? Can we just have a, before we move on to well, all kinds of stuff coming up? Um, but um, could we just have a quick summary of of PMQs and how Johnson performed and how the sort of Johnson Corbyn chemistry is working? It's bad, man. I mean, I, I'm surprised by how bad Boris Johnson is. Yeah. Genuinely yeah. surprised. I mean, he looked really even before PMQs, but earlier this week, his speech outside Number Ten, I thought mm. he looked bad and sounded bad and He's was very, very wobbly. And thank you very much to everyone that was outside Number Ten chanting "Stop Boris" yeah. because that yeah, was yeah. absolutely. Right. And I think that really threw him. I think yeah. that was part of it. He he wasn't expecting to hear the roar against him. I think that I think the the honeymoon ended when he went to Wales and Scotland and was booed. Uh, you could see in his body language that he yeah. was, he doesn't like that. Look, that. He wants to be loved. How long has it taken for all that dude language yeah, to yeah, dissipate? Yeah. And he's now showing that like the mask the mask has slipped. Yeah, yeah. He's like yeah. the, he's the authoritarian yeah. desperate, yeah. The, the boy emperor yeah. who's desperate to hold on to power. And you saw, uh, PMQs was was extraordinary in so many ways, actually. Just see to see Johnson make Corbyn look like uh, the parliamentarian, mm. look like uh, the statesman. Yeah. So Corbyn asking very, very calm, reasoned questions. Johnson yeah. responding like he's at the Oxford Union, jabbering and wailing about the surrender bill. It's such a terrible, terrible look. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, do anything for him. And then to have uh, a Labour MP confront him on racism, uh, on the racist comments he made about Muslim women, and for Johnson literally to respond that he was making a liberal defence, uh, which Joe Swinson then picked him up on, and then for Margot James, uh, the MP, to to spit out the name of Dominic Cummings and have sort of really launched a very ferocious attack at minister until a few weeks ago. Uh, Johnson was just collapsing every time. He had no answers to anybody. And I think that he's a busted flush, really. Mm. Amazing. It's quite interesting the tone of the comments recently and the kind of questions that are asked. Like all the way through yesterday, there was, for a start, there was this really sullen silence on the Tory side. Now, that is not, you've got a new government. You know, that's not usually the way things are. Usually there's all of the mm. confidence. Even when you've just replaced 
the old Prime Minister, like when Theresa May came in, do you remember the degree of boisterousness and confidence and noise that you would get? Then also, look, the kind of questions that Johnson is being asked all the time, the kind of questions that Jacob Rees-Mogg was asked, were all very precise. Yeah. It was, on exactly which date did you send this note that it went off? And what's interesting about that is MPs starting to acclimatise the fact that you're dealing with an administration based on bluster. Yeah. And the best way to deal with bluster it's is forensic questioning. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So actually you're looking at Parliament and thinking like, not just in the bigger constitutional way of Parliament taking on government, but you're also thinking like, on quite precise ways with individuals, you guys seem to be understanding what it is that you need to do. Let's move on to Gone in 60 Seconds, our regular feature where one of our panel has just one hot minute to completely debunk a treasured article of faith on the other side. This week's One Minute Man is Ian. He's been away for weeks. Now, is it? (laughs) (laughs) He's on the ball as ever. (laughs) What is it? What am I doing? What? Gone Ian, in 60 seconds. You know. Yeah, no, I understand. But what's the, you, but what's the subject? Wait, I'll get on to it, man. I'll get on to it. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Jump ahead. You'll okay, be fine. right. No, sorry. Excellent. <clears throat> Ian, your lever argument is the referendum was more democratic than a general election. It's obviously nonsense. Tell me why in 60 seconds. Oh, I see. Right. Yes. Well, I mean, the issue there really is specificity, isn't it? Um... You could easily have a referendum that was just as valid. I mean, I think the, the classic one is that 1999 Australian one on um, the monarchy, which is, do you want the monarchy or do you want this other specific system which we are highlighting to you here? And you can make a call on that. If your referendum is, would you like the status quo or something else, then you really haven't specified anything in order to come up with a policy solution to it. Now, that is not really the case in general elections. In general elections, which have many weaknesses, not least, you know, first past the post and not least the fact that you don't really know if someone's voting for a candidate or for a party or for a particular manifesto commitment and not another. But nevertheless, there is at least a policy programme that is being put by a government. And by voting for that candidate, you know that you are making that policy programme more or less likely. So on that basis, unless you have a higher degree of specificity, I think it's quite dangerous and in fact has got us into an awful lot of trouble to treat the referendum as if it's a superior form of democracy. Bosh, thanks Ian. Moving on. Get you in just a minute. (laughs) (sighs) Fucking hell. (laughs) We'll do as little of that as possible. (laughs) Has anyone ever talked about Brexit in just a minute? God knows. I'm sorry, maybe it's not allowed. I don't think they go near that shit because that's the last... Like, if you're in just a minute, it's like, it's a nice Sunday. Yeah. You're like, it's like, you, the last thing you want yeah. is like, oh, have a bit of horrible... I mean, Brexit is repetition and oh, deviation. Oh, And three years of hesitation. Naomi Smith is available for all Radio 4 panel shows. Now she's a day program regular. Moving on, do we or do we not want a general election? It's very confusing. Uh, Last week, the People's Assembly announced that their protest uh, on Tuesday was going to be a slogan, demand a general election now. Tony Blair then said it would be an elephant trap to back an election, while no deal was still an option. Corbyn said he wanted one anyway. Then Johnson said he wanted one, and then Corbyn said, no, actually, fuck off. Not until (laughs) no deal is ruled out. Ian, is the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, which has not been an unalloyed good, um, sort of finally, finally come good because Johnson can't call a snap election unless Labour gives it to him, right? Well, yeah, okay. So yes, a good thing has happened to do with the fixed terms Parliament Act, and the even stop clock tells the right time twice a day. However, even now, Boris Johnson, if he wants to, could just pass a bill going, notwithstanding the fixed terms Parliament, you can do that any time, right? Any piece of legislation overrules. That's to go through the Commons and Lords. Yeah, but it wouldn't need a two-thirds majority. No. So you just, you know, get a bill out there. You can get rid of the problem that you've got. You just need, you know, a majority plus one. 
Where's this majority coming from? Yeah. That's no, no, the thing, though. Shit it on that a few months ago. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that, no, that's true. But nevertheless, in terms of the actual lock that is placed on him, that almost insurmountable lock, he can still get over it fairly easily. And any normal government would be able to get over it right. fairly easily. This ain't no normal um, government. So, um, so nevertheless, so you you think something good has come of it, but it's it's kind of even now you, you could sidestep it sort of fairly easily. Really, I, I, I don't think there's too much of a trouble there. And still, when you look at it, it's a it's a pretty grim piece of legislation that showed very little foresight for how things would operate in the future. Jonathan, is Johnson preparing for an election based on the people versus parliament? Does it, does this kind of drama is that going to sort of serve his his message? It's, it's obviously not helping him in parliament, but would it be good sort of things to say to the country? Going, look at these people getting in my way. Well, absolutely, that's what he wants, and he's going to repeat exactly what Theresa May did. She literally went to the people on the People versus Parliament. She said, um, "Opposition are trying to thwart Brexit." That's, the, I think, those are her exact words. So, give me the negotiating hand to get the Brexit, and look how that turned out. But the problem is for Johnson is that. Um, if he brings over votes from one from one flank, he'll simply lose them on the other. So if he goes to the people, uh, assuming he gets his election, which I don't think he will in the next few days, but assuming he goes to the people on a no-deal platform, Nigel Farage will roll over, but what you would see is then a unique anti-Tory coalition, where it's pretty much the only situation where you can get Corbyn and Swinson working on the same page, where in the national interest, facing a an unprecedented national crisis, you would have Labour and Lib Dem voters, SNP plied, whatever, mm-hmm. holding their noses to vote for whichever candidate was most likely and best placed to stop the Tories. So that would actually be a, a very, very high risk uh, gamble for Johnson. And if Johnson doesn't go to the people on delivering no deal, then Farage will stand against him well, and he'll it. tear up the Tory vote. I mean, I think that's it. I think the people versus parliament thing only works for him be, you know, before the thirty first exactly. of, of yeah. October, and it's then John, it's then Farage's mantra if it right. if it goes on beyond right. that. He's in this sort of desperately weakened state at the moment, and he will be even more severely weakened if the thirty first of October comes and goes. Um, he's effectively being held hostage in Number Ten at the moment mm. because we're not giving him the election that he wants. I mean, and 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 it's important to pile this mess onto him as much as possible, mm-hmm. as much as possible, as much as possible. Um, yeah. So we're talking about two radic- are these two radically different scenarios before October thirty first and after October thirty yes. first is a completely different set of sort of calculations. Or, or after the October yeah. Yeah, after the October yeah. summit, I would say, right, when yeah, we yeah. know if there's gonna be a deal or not, which there probably won't be, etc. Yeah. We know what I mean, it is pretty clear what he wants now. We know that he won the election. So and of course opposition parties want elections too, because they want to be in government. Um so the solution has to be how do we make him getting what he wants? Uh, take place in the worst possible scenario for him. Monkey's poor him. Is that what that is? The what? monkey's poor. You know when you wish on the monkey's poor and you get what you wish, but there's a horrible. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's that from? Is that from? It's like an old, like it's like a like a like a short story, like a Somerset Maugham short story, oh, okay. or like a mm. myth. That, that great. seems to be yeah, that's yeah. basically his whole prime ministership mm. is a monkey's poor situation, mm. isn't it? like a theory yeah. of victory on it. And so you sort of think, well, what's the timing? Where, where can you be forced into? And I think the two things that are crucial. Firstly. He needs to kill the Brexit party. And if you're putting him in a position where the Brexit party will compete for those votes, you've minimised his chances of yep. success. Yeah. If you fail to do that, then I think John's sort of strategy works. And then you're like, right, we're all in now for an existential mm-hmm. fight for the face of the country. But first of all, you try to, you try to have yep. that split in place. And secondly, 
you know, he wants to be doing it when he's buoyed up in the polls, when he's got that bounce from just having come in. He's presented himself as this super macho, all of the sort of, you know, I have all of the, the, the momentum, I have all of the strength on it. So put him into a position where that is no longer true. And my instinct for that is, sort of as Naomi's saying, just get him into a position where he either has to go for that extension, break everything that he's said so far, and then as soon as yep. he's done it, we have an election. Or, you know, he has to consider yep. resigning. He, because he, he, he snookered himself. I mean, he either has to lift prorogation to try and do something himself through Parliament, yeah. or he has, you know, and, and if he has to go cap in hand to the, the, the EU Parliament, again, that's exactly not what uh, what he's wanting to do. Or he's, you know, having to, to do some kind of very, very dirty thing with uh, the Brexit party. But he, he hasn't got the numbers. Um, as long as, and I've said it earlier at the start of the show, we need SNP and the Labour leadership to hold firm on not giving him this election until that extension has been granted. But, oh, sorry, but, but Naomi, the, the, other, the genius point is that we can save the face of the opposition parties because Corbyn has now said uh, or implied strongly that he's not going to allow an election, uh, which is in his gift, of course, uh, until uh, it not, uh, not only the Commons has voted for it, uh, this bill, but until it's on the statute books. Mm. So that takes us to next Monday. Yeah. So that means that even if uh, you were to call an election and vote for an election next Monday, it would take you off. After well, he, he exactly, and, and we're supposed to be prorogued from next month. Right, exactly. So he's, so, got to, so he's just facing all these humiliations. Right, but that means that he'll have to go. He'll have to go yeah. uh, under law because you are not allowed or, to hold. Or he will, or he will, uh, you know, defy the law, and that isn't beyond the realms of possibility at this stage. Um, as, as I understand it, the courts are ready for that, uh, right up to the Supreme Court, and they're prepared to sit through the night to to take this on. If I mean, now we're talking about a real actual coup. Well, I mean, a coup. Combined with a purge, you yeah, know, yeah. 20th century is littered with people like this. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> because what's, what's sort of fascinating is for, for, for th- you know, four years really since since Corbyn has been Labour leader, we've had talks about the kind of, um, like I said earlier, you know, having a, an unelected kind of hardline advisor, but also, you know, purges and deselections. And this has been a lot of the kind of narr- the anti-Corbyn mm. narrative. Um, it seems to me that he's helped enormously by the Tories just leapfrogging it. And all the stuff that we're going, oh, Labour might do this. Oh, mm. they're talking about these elections. And then suddenly, like, Johnson People comes to just like, yeah. well, yeah. you're, you're all out. It, yeah. it makes Corbyn look like the hilarious grown thing, up in the The hilarious the thing is that the Tories are trying to paint Corbyn as a radical while literally yeah. shutting down Parliament and threatening to... But that's it. They've gone so far in yeah. direct of everything that they've accused Corbyn of doing that Corbyn actually hasn't. Yeah, in course. many cases, hasn't actually got round to doing. And he's looking like the grown-up in the room, which is exactly what they didn't want. Uh, he just needs to hold. He needs to hold firm now, and I think that there's hints that he is getting it. But the temptation will always be, right? Let's just go for this. And he yes. wants elections. He likes elections. Yes. Yeah. And so he's actually quite good at them as well. Yeah, and he is good. Yeah. At them. Yeah. People underestimate that. Um, and so he needs to just be held back a bit on that. And it's not clear whether that yeah. whether that'll hold. The prorogation actually then suddenly, as long as you've got that bill on the statute book, the prorogation actually shifts because you've neutralised no deal. So actually time works to your advantage on the Remain side because suddenly you're just pushing and pushing closer to the point where Boris Johnson would have to be in that position in in late October. Mm -hmm. So you've just got to sort of just kind of get there, just get basically to next Tuesday, really, without giving in on this stuff, which is not easy. I mean, it's not an easy position to go in front of cameras and be like, oh, we've been complaining about a coup for the last two weeks. I've been saying I want a general election for years, but I don't want this one. (laughs) I I don't want it on his terms. It's just, it's easy to defend. It could be done, but of course, it's a difficult... There's just one thing that I wonder about about 
an election is that at the moment the fear of no deal like is rallying people you know everybody against oh, Johnson. Yeah. a lot of centrists you know center right center left um center center would reluctantly sort of accept corbyn rather than no deal i mean you know i i've noticed that the general criticism even people that don't like corbyn are that's not really what they're talking about at the moment if no deal is blocked mm. Does that then mean that all those kind of reservations come back and that once the immediate threat has gone, people are less inclined to kind of suck it up and go for Corbyn? Or is there so much else that is repellent about this awful fucking government that actually people that generally really can't stand Corbyn would just go, do you know what, it's better than this? I think Corbyn just has to do one thing, which is to convince enough people that he is going to call a second referendum and that he's going to campaign for Remain. So many of the people who've abandoned Labour have done it because they don't trust him to do that because they want Labour to be a Remain party. I think Labour is almost, almost there. And if they just get nudged over that line in their manifesto, that should be enough. Now, what you have, it should be enough for some people, not everyone, of course. Name yeah, no, well, I'm just, I just, because oh, I've got the MRP at my fingertips the data on all of this uh, the we are not going to see a repeat of 2017 no um we there is no scenario under which um labor are going to have the number of remain votes behind them that that were lent to them in 2017 as they do now yeah. um we are not in a situation where any of the parties at the moment can form any kind of majority government uh, uh, the only way the conservatives can are if farage does what he keeps saying that he'll do which of course we know he won't do if uh, if if the 31st of october comes and goes before that um and so lotto know this they know that they are going to have to work with the smp and potentially the lib dems as well um i think what what is focusing their minds at the moment is how quickly the mood of the country could turn against them on this whole uh, we've always said we wanted a general election and now we're saying we don't and I think that's what they're a bit worried about particularly in some of the Labour leave heartlands around the country oh, you, you know all you've talked about is wanting a general election you've been offered it we can we can tolerate you you know delaying it for a little while but but really now so I think that's what's worrying them and we've got to get them to hold firm because otherwise we're still in that danger zone of, of crashing out but you've also like, got Brenda from purpose. Bristol. You've got the Brenda from Bristol counter argument, which the people actually don't want to go to elect to the polling booths all the time. And if it's, and if you can prove that you're being principled mm. uh, in opposing this election, you're yes. going to do it on your terms. And I actually, agree. that's, that, that's, that's, that's neutralised. That, that's the message we need to get to them. But, yeah. but a YouGov poll literally just out as we've been on air um, is is the general election now wanted by the public in mid-October. Uh, and we think that that's mostly coming from Conservative voters swinging behind it when they were against it a few weeks back. But the Conservatives are, are still surprised quite a bit ahead of Labour in the polls. Yep. Mm-hmm. Is, do we expect that to change after this shit show? No, I mean, or... look, there'll be. I mean, there's going to be some reduction from where they are now. This is going to be presumably, we think, the high watermark for where they're going to be. But really, for an election, that the most important thing is where are your votes, rather than how much. Yes. Yeah. So, and you know what you need right. to worry about is obviously Lib Dem Tory marginals. You need to worry about Scotland, which it looks like he'll pretty much lose everything. Southwest as well. Um, th- that's going to be where this whole thing is decided. I do think. Look. There's no two ways around. I don't... I, I, I was thinking about this this morning. I'm thinking, like, this isn't like a hill I'd die on with this stuff because there are strong arguments for the other way. There are strong arguments for just get the bill down. I mean, of course, if he gets a majority, he can he can repeal it. But the, when you start playing... When you start getting too clever with your little chess pieces, the public can just look at it yeah. and be like, I don't like the fucking smell of what you're doing over there. Let's, if you want the fucking election, then go ahead and have it. Yeah. So I say all of this with, with trepidation, but it does seem to me, like, right now, like... If it's clear what he wants, 
it is important to give it to him in the worst possible terms. And the worst possible terms, I think, are very, very clear. Finally, um, it might not actually be a coup, but the Stop the Coup protests seem to have re-energised Remain in time for the big march October 19th. Um, you can find updates and local protests on Twitter at Tech4UK. Naomi, you were in Exeter. Yeah, I was. How, yeah. how, how was that? What, what was the atmosphere and what, what kind of people were there? It was um, incredible, actually. Uh, so there was it, was it was truly cross-party and a lot of them weren't. And so I'm sort of glad to have the chance to talk mm. about this, really. Um, so in Exeter, we had Ben Bradshaw. We had Sarah Wollaston, now Lib Dem. We had a Lib Dem MEP. We had the Labour group leader on the council. We had me. We had um, uh, a, a union rep from UCU. We had a green, a local green activist. So it was it was properly cross party in Devon for Europe. Got a really great look in. Um, in in other parts of the country, the feedback to me um, at Best of Britain has been. Where the hell were these guys for the last three and a half years? You know, the grassroots groups are pretty angry that this is now becoming a bit of a momentum takeover uh, and a bit of a rehabilitation exercise for, for Labour. Uh, there were some uh, areas, particularly, I think, uh, Labour, uh, Leeds and Liverpool, where the Labour speakers were just sort of back to back for 40, 50 minutes and people were out there standing in the rain saying... I didn't come out to hear mm. from these guys for so long. Mm. The whole point of this is that there is a cross-party effort uniting against this coup, against Boris Johnson, against No Deal. Um, and so the groups that have been, you know, bless them, weekend after weekend yeah, yeah, no for shit. three and a half years, you know, doing the hard graft on this, keeping the fly, the, 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 the fire of um, Remain Alive around the country, uh, a bit cross about that. Um, but, you know, it, it is absolutely right that people keep doing it every Saturday from now on, you know, making sure that you're finding out where your where your local group is meeting and going along and, and making as much noise as possible is, is crucial. Well, the insulting, the really insulting one, I think, was the People's Assembly one where they had Eddie Dempsey and Tarek Ali, who were both like pro-Brexit, <laughs> which led, I think, Owen Jones and Ash Sarkar to drop out. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just like, if you cannot at this point in time be anti-Johnson and pro-Brexit, yeah. mm -hmm. it was just the absolute addled mindset of, of, of that organization you know the two are the two are intertwined even now i find it like you know you can feel the, the the sort of movements pulling together and and all of which is a good thing but even now when i'm talking to sort of corbyn guys online i am just i'm so exasperate because of course what you get back is like and now you see his master plan has come into force that you denied yeah. and you're like jesus god man really like if i have to keep on reading this it's gonna be impossible for me to show any solidarity whatsoever so i just need to go away so even now it's difficult but it is necessary uh jonathan how important are these protests because they're not i mean relative to say size of a people's vote march is obviously planned for weeks in advance you know these were very ad hoc they were smaller but you know significant given given how quickly they came together and it seemed to kind of represent a kind of a real sort of disgust and rage it wasn't so much the kind of like the signs were not so much the kind of jolly mm -hmm. ones that we, we've seen on kind of a lot of remain protests it seems like it's quite a welcome for a new pm do you think they're going to turn into something more i'm not maybe not kind of you know uk maidan protest but do you think they will evolve when now there is actually more time to sort of plan that it will become something more long term a refusal to accept this government I think it really depends on what happens in the next uh, weeks and months. I mean, there was a really interesting moment where Johnson came out and obviously he had stopped the coup, uh, shouted, uh, you know, in the background, and there was a garden party happening. And I, I sort of tweeted that it was like uh, the French Revolution meets Brideshead Revisited. Uh, so that can definitely... Uh, 
spiral, if you like, if Johnson continues to flout the rule of law, we'll see what happens to prorogation, we'll see what happens in an election campaign if the Tories uh, do go on a platform of no deal. I think that will lead to real, real anger, real fear, and that will inc increasingly uh, lead to, to street protests as well. But I think the, the problem with protest is it's really important uh, to, to show uh, what you're thinking but and to show the depth of feeling, but it's it's unclear how much protest actually affects um, policy-making and decision-making in Parliament because, you know, always go back to 2003 and the Iraq war demonstrations and we still went to war in Iraq. Naomi, do you think you've been a lot... You've organised and, of course, been on a lot of these um, Remain marches, branded in differently, mm -hmm. a lot of these Remain marches. And like I said, the mood is often very kind of like jolly mm. and family-friendly and rather wry placards. Do you expect the one in October to have a a darker, angrier mood? I'm not talking full-on black block going for the windows of the Ritz. Um <laughs> But just like a harder edge to what we've we've certainly seen. more sombre, um, yes. Um, it, also, it's going to totally depend whether or not we're in a general election period at that stage. Uh, in which case, I'm not entirely sure it could necessarily go ahead um, because of election spending rules and the sheer expense of putting on those events hmm. uh, would take you over your limit um, and remember the weekend before this also on the rally for our rights for those that had booked their tickets before the date got changed and, and still wanted to have a protest but yeah your your substantive point is uh, it's less about you know having a witty uh, sort of cartoony kind of placard and and, and is there something uh, a bit more serious and I think yes it absolutely is and, and we're seeing that in these mini demonstrations and just to say that yes of course there, there weren't the numbers at, at these ones last weekend that there were at the People's Vote marches, but um, the People's Vote marches don't cannibalise uh, each other's events. They're, they're always in London and people come from all over the country to go to them. Mm -hmm. If they were happening in 32 places around the country, you would probably see, you know, similar-ish numbers. Yeah. It was immense in Parliament yesterday. I mean, you really... like Felt you could, it, yeah. Yeah, you could feel yeah. it because of the... the the drums, man. God, I love the sound of those drums. Like, as well, you actually feel like the fucking armies are at the gates. Yeah. Right? Well, like, every, every interview that you hear yeah. on the yeah. radio, yeah. there's yeah. like, there's kind of voices in the background and drums, and mm -hmm. it's like. Yeah. There's a, there's yeah, a unique energy. Yeah, there's green, a but... unique energy in Westminster, <laughs> like in College Green. Green yeah. Yeah. <laughs> College Green is, is wild. College um, Green is turning into one of the most insane yeah. spots in Britain. Yeah, it's like every it's a place to be seen. I was doing, it's a great place to meet people. Networking. <laughs> I think, like I, I, think like, I might do a bit of speed dating next time. I met Peter Mandelson yesterday. Not, not sorry. Those are two not those two are not opposite things, by the way. When I said dating, and Peter were, Mandelson, there was just a full the, stop there, not a semicolon between the two. Yeah. <laughs> I was when I was on College Green a couple of weeks ago. Um, Peter Bone was being interviewed just you know, six feet away from me by a different station. And so the Sodom guys had come along and they were all doing impressions of John Burko very, very loudly going, Mr. Peter Bone! And I could just hear this getting louder and louder oh, as I was being interviewed. And I was trying so hard not to laugh. It'd be like, <laughs> thumbs up. So, so just before we wrap up, um, there's obviously, we've covered a lot. Ian, is there something that um, in my, if I could, in the hypothetical barbecue situation, what is the next thing that people should be um should should be waiting for what's the what, what's the kind of takeaway the next turning point um i mean look the date the dates that matter at the moment are um at the end of this week start of next when we get that bill onto the statute book then it's the eu summit on the 17th and 18th and the timetable at the end of it on the 19th um 
in order for the Prime Minister to have to go and extend. This is the period that we're looking at now. Those are the decisive moments and everything's going to be played out in between those two dates. Well, that's the end of the show, which means the Brexit time capsule, which is increasingly like a refuge from the outside world. We might pop into it early, uh, but it's meant to be a repository of things we'll need or miss if Brexit ever happens, which, God willing, it won't. Jonathan Liss, you're our guest. What are you putting in there? I miss a time where where small things felt big. when Where sort of you could have where, where we could get into incredible sort of... Uh, incredible sort of frenzy about very, very minor things because actually it was a more innocent time and we weren't dealing with uh, real people's lives. We weren't dealing with the, the future of our democracy. We weren't dealing with an, an all-out assault on our institutions in the way that we have been on a regular basis the last three years. So just a time of, just a, just for people to fucking calm down, basically. There was a great Salman Rushdie quote where he was talking about, you know, the Trump years. And he goes, do you remember when there was just a week where everyone was talking about Charlie Sheen having a meltdown? Yeah. <laughs> and it basically, was like, just take, us back, take us back to the mid-90s. You know, that, that was, was a, a great meltdown. That was a happy time. That was one of my favourite meltdowns because he made his own language. It was fucking great. Johnny Sheen had one of the best meltdowns I've ever seen. Um, you have just put the concept of small things seeming big into the time capsule. <laughs> like, that's such, it's, it's quite abstract. That's good. Jonathan has I, put his innocence into the time capsule. Oh, oh nice. well, that went, to, that went in time capsule a long time ago. You're like... <laughs> With regular news. You're basically like... <laughs> Regular news is basically what you want to put. Just like the I'd regular just, rhythm. If I of could, life. if I could, sort of just put the the, the atmosphere of the mid nineties. Uh, the mid nineties were a time where we had a liberal consensus, or we thought we had, you know, where people were talking about the end of history and how arrogant, how hubristic that was. Because it's never the end of history. There's always just another fucking thing waiting to happen after this one. I love the way that Francis Fukuyama is going to spend the rest of his life going. No, I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> Poor guy. Poor guy. Yeah. <laughs> No time for an EU language clip this week, I'm afraid. Too much news. But don't forget to send us your clip to info at romaniacs.com. Keep them short and ideally don't record them somewhere noisy like a motorway, a wind tunnel or the House of Commons when an MP is crossing the floor. <laughs> and that's the show. Thank you, Naomi and Ian. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan Liss. Thank you. It's time for our theme tune by the legendary Corner Shop. It's called Demon is a Monster. You can get a free download at ampleplay.co.uk. Please raise your glasses of stockpiled French wine and Belgian beer as we thank our latest Patreon backers. Hello, thanks from me to Neil Nixon, David Book, Stephen Richardson, David Bingham, Jacob, thank you, Moggy. Uh, John, actually, sorry, Jacob, that's really unfair to you. <laughs> I, don't, I take it back. Um, uh, John Herring, Andrew Maynard, Richard Bateman, Andy Green and Paul Evans. Cheers, guys. And thank you very much from me to Robert Zinner, Francis White, Red Broad, Robert Collier, Stephanie, Andrew Horner, Carl Jonas Johansson, Hilton Mandelson, Dominic Beddo and Andy Reagan. And thanks for me to Richard Riley, John Lowry, Jacob Sanderswood, Alexis Taylor, probably not the singer from Hot Chip, but why not? David Clements, <laughs> let's say it is. David Clements, John Savage, Kathy Hume, Stephen Headley, Matt Osler, and Andrew Reid. See you next week. <laughs> Romaniacs was presented by me, Dorian Linsky. The producer is Andrew Harrison and studio production by Sophie Black. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.